The following message is brought to you by Cashin First Baptist Church and Pastor Greg Davis in Cashin, Oklahoma. For more information about Cashin FBC, please visit cashinfbc.org. If you have your Bible, would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians 13? I want to kind of remind you what we've been talking about in the last couple of weeks as we've joined as a church family, what our goal is in meeting together. There's a story in the book of Luke, chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. It's about a sister, a pair of sisters named Mary and Martha. You remember Martha is busy doing good things for the Lord, and she's running around trying to serve and doing lots of uh, service-oriented acts. And then you have Mary, who it says is seated at the feet of Jesus, listening to his words. And really what we want to do is put aside the distractions on Sunday and sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to his word. Because there's times that we're going to be busy and distracted doing good things. But there's those moments where we have to sit undistracted at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus, at the end of that, if you remember, says, Mary took the best portion. Mary took what was going to last forever, and that is the eternal word of God. And so just always remember that as we gather on Sunday mornings. You say, why do you open the Bible, go verse by verse, line upon line? Why do we do that? Because it's an opportunity to sit with Jesus, and that's what we want to do as a church body. So if you have your Bible, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 8, and we are going to have a goal to get to the end of the chapter today. Paul says this, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And then we have verse 8, love never fails. Would you bow your head with me this morning as we go to the Lord in prayer? Father, we want to pause this morning and thank you for your love that you've demonstrated for us through the sending of your son, Jesus Christ, to die on our behalf. And God, I pray that uh, we have that as our motivation in life to love you, that you loved us first, and our motivation to love others well because you've loved us well. And God, I pray for this moment that we would have our ears attuned to what you would say and our hearts attuned to what you would say. And Lord, that our eyes would be open to the truth of Scripture. And Lord, I pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We've been working our way through 1 Corinthians 13. And you remember it's a text all about the church. Not necessarily a text all about marriage, but it is a text all about the church and how we interact with one another in the church. And this is a foundational text of Scripture when we think about the health of our church as well as the future of our church. That's what we've been in this series of messages, talking about the health of the church and the future of the church. And this has everything to do with that. 
Now, I want to remind you in verses 1 through 3, kind of where we've been, and then they'll move us into this new material here just shortly. But in 1 through 3, we considered together the priority of love. Paul uh, tells us that love must be a priority in the body of Christ, in the church. And I want to give you a little illustration as to tell you why that's so important. Uh, Love is literally, you need to think of it this way, the gas that makes the car run. Essentially, you can have the best car with the greatest horsepower, handles like a dream on the road, but if it's sitting in the driveway without fuel, you realize that that car has no power. That car really has no use but to sit there and collect dust and maybe eventually rust on that vehicle. But the reality is if it has fuel in it, then it can run. Well, that's the picture of the church, Paul says in verses 1 through 3, without love. It can be packed with people that are gifted, who possess all kinds of abilities and everything else. And Paul says, if love is not tethered to that, then the value in the church is completely lost and the power is completely lost. To put it back to our illustration, the car simply will not run. Now, Paul is not one to leave us there and say, you can get away, like I said last week, you can get away with saying, well, I'm a loving person. I sign all of my cards, love Greg. Uh, I tell my kids on a regular basis I love them or my spouse that I love them. Paul doesn't let us get away with that. Paul is going to lay before us next uh, in the next verses not only the priority of love, but now the picture of love, okay? And here's what he's going to say. This is what the Word of God says about the loving person. There's negative pictures of it. There's positive pictures of it. And Paul says, this is our measuring rod that we lay ourselves beside and say, am I really a loving person? And why does God require us to look at his word? Because every one of us here can find someone who fell short of that standard of love, and we will compare ourselves to them. My my dad wasn't the most loving person, right? You can say that. But in comparison to him, I'm great, (laughs) Uh, My mother wasn't much of a a loving person, never said that she loved us, but compared to her, I'm great, or my grandparents, whoever it is. But that's never the standard. The standard is always the Word of God. Now, let me tell you something amazing about God's grace. If we fall short of the standard, by His grace and His Holy Spirit, we can correct what we see. Because that's what he does. He shows us and he convicts us in his word and he says, this is what you need to work on. So let's look, by way of reminder, at these pictures of love, positively and negatively, and then we'll get into the new verses starting in verse 6, okay? So the first thing it tells us is that love is patient. That's a positive picture of love. And if you have a King James Bible, you have something like this, that love is long-suffering. It's long-suffering. And you need to remember that this is not loving because you're patient toward circumstances. This is patience toward people. And specifically, if you remember this, people who maybe fall short of your standards. People that have wronged you or have made you suffer. Then the question is, am I really a a loving and patient person? Because that's what Paul is talking about here. And then he goes into verse 4 and he says, love is kind. Now this is the opposite of being harsh with someone. This is wanting what is best for someone, giving good things to people, giving good gifts to people. 
And and we don't want to forget this. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says this. It is the kindness of God that actually leads us to repentance. Not his condemnation, not his judgment, not his harshness, but it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And he calls us to that same kind of love, that we want good things for people. Now, the negative picks up also in verse 4. Love is not, you notice that first negative there, love is not jealous. We are able, hear me, because this is so hard for us, and if you're a loving person, he says you're not going to do this. We are able, when we see other people succeeding, we are able to celebrate their successes. Unless it's in athletics, and then we don't do that, okay? That's that one, uh, Paul has a footnote there if you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But we are able to celebrate another person's successes. We don't, we don't become jealous of what God has done for them. And then verse 4, love does not brag and is not arrogant. A loving person does not want another person to be jealous of what they have. Right? That's being arrogant. That's boasting and bragging. We're not doing that, Paul says, if we're loving people. And then remember verse 5, love does not act unbecomingly. Any major translation probably has there the word rude. Love is not rude. This means that we're not purposefully doing or saying anything with the intent of offending another person. That's not what love does. Love doesn't act that way. Love also does not seek its own. You see it there in verse 5? This means the loving person is not self-centered. They, they don't put themselves at the center of the universe. They are willing to deflect away and say, it's all about God's glory and it's all about other people. They're always willing to deflect in that way to another person. Then love is not provoked in verse 5. That's another negative there. This means we don't get ir- easily irritated with people or easily angered with people. The loving person realizes what James was talking about in his little epistle that he wrote to the church there at the back of your Bible. James says this, we all stumble in many ways. And when we know that, right, we're not going to get irritated when someone stumbles. We're not going to get irritated when, when someone wrongs us. or does. We're not going to get easily provoked with that because we do it ourselves. So the loving person recognizes that. The last on the list from last week is this, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to ask you if you remember this from last week. This is an accounting term and a bookkeeping term, this idea of keeping a record of wrongs, where you would enter in on a ledger the time and date of a debt, and you would keep it forever. And Paul says the loving person does not do that in relationships. As a matter of fact, I told you last week, the best way to think about this is that the ledger book has been thrown out when we love someone. We don't draw back and say, do you remember what you did to me in 1984? And and, and literally, we've never gotten over that. And, And I draw it up on a regular basis to show you that's not the loving attitude. Now, fortunately for us, let me tell you something. Fortunately for us, God in Christ threw away the ledger book. The Bible actually tells us in the book of Colossians that he nailed that debt that we owed to the cross never to be remembered ever again. Past, present, and future sins, God says, I take out the ledger and I throw it out. Now, all of those are what we looked at and considered last week. All of these from verse 
7 or verse 6 will now become the new pictures of love that we've not looked at together. So let's look at this next negative picture. Please, if you've kind of been tuned out because you said we heard all that last week, now's the time to tune in. Notice this, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Now my goal is to take this and apply this in two ways that this text applies. But first I have to give you some some, uh, translations of this that will help you understand what Paul's saying here. We don't speak in ways like Paul did. We don't say we don't love unrighteousness. But here's something you might say. Love does not rejoice in evil. That's one way to look at it. Love does not, hear me, celebrate sin. So let me tell you two ways that we can apply this, okay? And I want to give you two illustrations to look at this. When I was a uh, young man in the 1980s and 1990s, there was a boxer, and you probably know his name. He was the most feared man in the world. His name was Mike Tyson. And Mike Tyson went on a winning streak like none other had ever had, and literally he became this uh, person who everybody believed was unbeatable. And you remember, if you were in my age group, that he went to Japan, flew over to Japan, didn't take the fight seriously, and a man by the name of James Buster Douglas beat Mike Tyson. You can still look it up on YouTube and you can pull up the 30 for 30 about it. It's really good, okay? But Mike Tyson, if you remember, after that got into some legal trouble, went to jail, came out, and he became a heel for the boxing world. And if you don't know what a heel is, he's kind of an enemy for everybody. And if you fast forward to the 1990s, the later 1990s, he fought a man named Evander Holyfield. And in that fight, that second fight's famous for this reason. In the middle of the fight, third round, Mike Tyson bites the top of Evander Holyfield's ear off. And he does it not only once, but he does it twice. They stop the fight, they disqualify him. Now that's not the fight that I'm discussing here. Mike Tyson actually fought Evander Holyfield about a year before that in the first meeting. And Evander Holyfield pummeled him so bad his eyes were black and and swollen and his face was all swollen. And, And He literally had to stop the fight in the 11th round. And he said, what does this have to do with celebrating sin? Everybody loved it that Mike Tyson lost because the giant had fallen. Brothers and sisters, when we talk about not celebrating sin or celebrating unrighteousness, we don't celebrate when a brother or sister in Christ falls. That's not the loving attitude to look and say, yeah, they went down and I knew that and I, and I knew they were gonna, that, that was going to be the end of their demise. No, that's not what the loving person does. But there's a second way, and I think that we're probably more likely to commit this act of, of lovelessness in the church than the first act. And I want to give you another illustration. If you were in my Sunday school class a couple of months ago, I, I said when our kids were little, Mom, which is my wife, taught them how to read. And here's how she taught them to read. She would sit them in her lap, in the recliner. They would put the book up, and she would read to them. And then before they could ever read, they would mimic what she was doing. And most of them, they had the little Disney books memorized by the end of this. And we were so impressed, thought they could all read. And they really couldn't. They were just parroting what mom said. So then Gretchen started to give them a little bit more independence. And they would get in her lap. And you remember what I said? They would hold the book upside down. And Gretchen, because she loved our kids, here's what she would do. She would take the book and she would turn it right side up. Now, why am I using this illustration? 
Did you understand, do you understand that we're living in a culture right now that says if you turn the book around, (laughs) that you don't love people? That if we say anything about their lifestyle, if we say anything about the sin in their life, then we certainly do not love them. Did you know the Bible says the polar opposite of that? Love, hear me, what Paul says, love does not celebrate sin. It does not celebrate sin. That's not loving when we just say, hey, you got your thing and I've got mine, God's got his thing. No, that's not love. And I want to prove this to you by turning over to Romans chapter 1. It's just to your left, a few pages. Go to Romans chapter 1, and I want us to look at one verse at the end of a string of sins that Paul has listed. And I want you to see what Paul says in verse 32. Look at what he says here. He says, although they know the ordinance of God, and if you want a modern translation of this, they know what the Bible says. They know the ordinances of God, and he says this, that those who practice such things, that list of sins that he talked about, are worthy of death. This is talking certainly about spiritual death, eternal death here. Look at what he says. They not only do them uh, themselves, they not only do the same. Here's what I want you to see but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Now, in a culture we live in, if you give hearty approval to someone's lifestyle, you know what people say? I do that because I love them. Paul says, no, you don't. You don't love them with the love of Christ if you give hearty approval of their sins. You actually, believe it or not, Paul would say you actually hate them, right? Because we want people to turn from their sins and to find Jesus Christ. So what attitude should we have as loving members of the body of Christ? I want you to look up here at Matthew chapter 5 verse 4. And look at what this says. This is in the uh, beginning part of the Beatitudes. And it says, blessed are those who mourn. Now normally what we do when we apply this is we say, somebody in the church is going through something and we grieve or mourn with them. That's not the application here. The application here is that we are mourning and grieving our own sin. And not only are we mourning and grieving our own sin, we should mourn and grieve the sins of others. Right? That's the loving attitude. We don't celebrate sin. And what does he say to that person? They shall be comforted. Now, would you look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 13? Verse 6, another positive. This is connected to what we just said. Love rejoices with the truth. We don't celebrate sin, but we do rejoice with the truth. The loving person does not celebrate sin, but they do celebrate any time the truth wins out. And what truth are we speaking of here? Specifically, we're speaking here of God's word. Many years ago when I was thinking about the ministry, long before I ever pastored a church, and as a matter of fact, I was working as an intern for my father-in-law as a youth person. And I started to read church growth books. And I can tell you with vivid recall what those church growth books said. The church growth gurus said this, deeds, what we do over creeds. They would say we need to put deeds in front of truth. In other words, or this was another one, 
and some of you could say this with me, doctrine divides, right? The truth of God's word divides, but love, what do we want to say? Love what? Yeah. So here's essentially what the church growth gurus were saying without saying it. We need to take biblical truth and put it on the shelf for a season. And we want to put deeds out there, and we just want to love people. And I want to tell you this, friends, that's not possible. Because the Bible tells us here, if we are going to love people, we must tell people the truth. And I'll give you the perfect example of this. Jesus Christ, the person who loves people deeper than any of us could ever do, the Bible says of him in John 14, 6, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. To shelve the truth is to literally shelve Jesus. How about John's illustration in John chapter 1 when John said this, Jesus came full of grace, you remember this, and truth. So if we truly love Jesus and we truly love other people, we want them to have the truth. That's why Paul says love rejoices with the truth. Now, verse 7, go back. Love bears all things. There's a loud noise out there. Love bears all things. This is one of those verses that is going to require some serious explanation. Because if you look in every major translation, this is what you're going to find. It bears all things or something like enduring. Uh, the NLT says never gives up. But in some of your translations, and I know there was somebody here in the early service who had it, in your footnote you're going to find that in all the original language helps that you look up, here's what you're going to find. It's something like this. Love covers all things, and love always protects. Those are two literal translations that you're going to find. And here's what it means. That we literally cover something like a roof covers something uh, over a house in order to protect it. Now, I want to say this. In my humble but accurate opinion, I believe that covering is the best translation. Okay? And here's why. This is the picture that we get over and over in Scripture is that we are covering things in the church, not in a sinful way, but in a gracious way. And I'll tell you an Old Testament illustration of this. In the Old Testament, after the flood, Genesis chapter 9, you remember the flood has been uh, covered the whole world. Everything is lost. All the people perish because God judged the world. And one family in the ark made it through all of that. Now, I want to pause right here and have you imagine something. Can you imagine stepping off the ark after the flood and realizing in the whole entire world, you're the only eight or nine people that survived it? And you're going to realize pretty quickly there's a lot of work to do. And one of the things that Noah does is he plants a vineyard. You remember this story. Noah plants a vineyard. He gets a little bit overzealous with the produce of the vineyard, makes some wine, and literally ends up getting intoxicated. Everybody remembers this story. And he's so intoxicated that he goes into the tent, he's got no clothes on, and he's laid out cold in the tent. Now, some of you are snickering. You've never read this story. Go back and read it. This is exactly what it says. He's in the tent. He has no clothes on. And his son, by the name of Ham, thinks it's humorous. 
And so Ham, you remember what he does? He calls everybody in and says, this is a good time to poke fun at dad. Let's look at him. He's, he, he's drank too much of the produce of his vineyard and, and he's wasted and I want everybody to see him. And Ham kind of makes light of this. Now, we're all laughing, but the reality is Ham ends up getting judged for this. But do you remember what his other two sons did? It said they took a garment and they walked backwards and they covered their father. They covered up his sin and his shame. Now, brothers and sisters, this has everything to do with how we translate this verse, that love covers all things. And let me tell you how. When a believer comes to us with a struggle, we are not quick to drag it into the light. Right? We want to help them to keep that from being exposed. And here's what I want you to know. There are times that we have to expose sin when someone's not willing to repent of it. And that, that is called in the Bible church discipline. And even Jesus, the gentle and humble Savior, says there's times when somebody won't repent of sin that we do have to expose it. But when somebody comes to us, here's what we want to do. We want to walk humbly with them and we want to protect them. Just as those two brothers protected their father's sin and shame. We don't want to expose it. We don't want to mock it. We don't want to make light of it. We want to cover it, and we want to protect people. And I want to tell you what I found in many years of ministry. In that kind of environment, confession becomes much easier. Is it not good and right to confess our sins one to another? And when you feel protected... When you feel someone's going to walk beside you in that, you're much quicker to do that. Now, verse 7, go back, and we have another positive here. Love believes all things. Not only does it bear all things, but it believes all things. And some of you may be recoiling right now as we talk about believing all things because you're thinking to yourself, I'm not gullible. I'm not uh, easily duped. I have a discerning spirit. And I want to tell you this, you have good reason to be that way. Because the Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. We are called to be discerning. We are called to be, have a critical uh, mindset that we can read things and discern things. But what does that mean when it says believes all things? When we love God, we believe his word. Even when it's difficult to take in. Even when it's difficult to understand. When we love God, we believe all things regarding His Word. When we are dealing with a fellow Christian, we need to believe the best about them first. Right? They may prove us otherwise, but up front, we need to believe all things. We need to just say, hey, I think what they're telling me is true, and I'm going to accept it as true. That's what we do as a person who loves other people. I don't know how many of you, there was like half a person that raised their hand in the first service. How many of you had someone in your life that you misread and, and you thought, oh, I have this scenario in my mind of how this person is. They said something or did something and I've completely written them off. And then you actually get to know them and you realize, man, this is a great person. <laughs> but what is the reality? The unloving person doesn't believe all things. Now, verse 7 also says, love hopes all things. I think this is connected to what we just said. God, you have a plan, and I trust it. 
you have a plan and I trust it. Kistemaker, who wrote a commentary on 1 Corinthians, said this. Hope is the converse of pessimism. Hope is the converse of pessimism and it's the essence of healthy optimism. And he said this. Hope is always focused on God. So here's a verse that I would give you for that uh, believes all things and hopes all things that you ought to tuck away in your Bible. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. We just say, God, you've got a plan. It seems kind of winding and twisting right now. There seems to be a lot of zigzagging and crisscrossing, but I know at the end of this, you're going to get me to where I need to go. You're going to accomplish what you need to accomplish. That's hoping all things. Now, verse 7, love endures all things. One literal translation said this, it's the idea of triumphant fortitude, triumphant fortitude. When I was a sophomore in high school, and I think they've made these illegal, John Hardaway, you could maybe tell me this, back when I was a kid, uh, uh, 10th grade, we had something called two-a-days. Now, I don't, do they still do those? Some places do. Uh, they were highly legal when I was there, and it was to the point of almost abusing us during two-a-days. But everybody remembers this. You would get to the school at 8 o'clock. Uh, they had just freshly cut the grass. The sprinklers had been running. We're in cotton shorts, shoulder pads, and a helmet. And we would lay down in the wet grass, and everybody would moan and complain. And the wet grass is sticking to your leg, and you would absolutely hate it. And then they would say, guys, you need to be back at 2 o'clock. We're going to have our second practice. By 2 o'clock, the grass is dried out. <laughs> It's 108 degrees, and you're pleading for the dew of the grass to be there, and it's dry, and it's poking into your legs, and and you're hot and everything else. And I had a coach. This is what he would say. He would say, men, you need some intestinal fortitude. And and his name was Coach Bo. Let me tell you what Coach Bo was saying. We have to endure some hardships to get to the goal. That's what Paul says. The loving church endures hardships all things. They have fortitude to march forward together. And and I want to make sure you see this in verse 7. Everybody take your eyes down there. Love endures all things, the good and the bad. They endure it together. They march side by side together. There have been so many people that have asked me, how did you last 19 years in one church and how did they not run you out of the church over 19 years? And you know what I say? Because they loved me. They endured all things with me. My father-in-law's got to be a smart aleck up here on the front row. Literally, I, I tell people this. I didn't know anything about ministry, and this church let me make a lot of mistakes early on. They endured many things, but isn't that what the body of Christ is to do? We don't bail at the first sign of trouble. If you want to be a healthy church and loving church, you endure the good and the bad together. Why? Because we're filled with love for God and love for one another. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. We have considered the priority of love. We have examined the picture of love. And last, I want you to see just briefly the permanence of love. Now, I want to tell you what I told the first service. I don't always use alliteration, but when it works, I use it. Because I remember my uh, professor of Bible at OBU He says, too many of you spend too much time in your thesaurus and not in your Bible. (laughs) But this happens to work. The last thing on the list is this, the permanence of love. Look at verse 8. 
notice what it says here. Love never fails. It's always going to be there. And he goes on to say this. If there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away with. Now, I want you to skip down to verse 13. Now, faith, hope, love, abide these three. This means they stand, but he says the greatest of these is love. I want you to hear me. One day, all of the gifts will cease. He just says that, verse 8. Tongues, prophecy, all those things will cease. One day, our faith will be sight and we will need it no longer. We'll be face-to-face with Jesus. I preached a funeral two weeks ago in Pawhuska, Oklahoma. Sarah Jolliffe's dad, Bob Butts, she's not here today. Bob was one of the godliest men over the three years that I knew him that I'd ever been around. Gentle, humble, everything else. And, And it was just so easy, honestly, to preach his funeral. And, and I say right now to you, Bob Butts doesn't need faith right now. He's face-to-face with Jesus Christ, right? Even faith will come to an end. And what about hope? Well, one day God's prophecies and promises will all be fulfilled. And all that will remain is that Christ will return and establish his eternal kingdom. And we will no longer be waiting on anything. There'll be no need for hope. But here's what will be there with us throughout all of eternity. Love for God and love for one another. Why? Because love is permanent. Now, I'm going to ask you to pay attention for the next five seconds. Would you close your Bible? How can you know this love that never ends? That will be felt for all of eternity. I want you to hear me this morning. There is one way. You turn to the one who loved you so much that he died in your place on the cross. That's how you know the love that lasts for all eternity. And I want to tell you this wild, wild criteria of getting into that love. You have to admit that you're messed up. That's the criteria. Not cleaning your act up, not not marching in a perfect line. It's to come to God and say, God, I missed the mark. I'm messed up. I haven't done it right, and I'm asking you to forgive me. And here's what God says. I love you. Welcome into my kingdom. This is the only religion that I know of that the criteria to enter is to be messed up. (laughs) And God says, I've provided a way for you. I love you enough that I sent my son to die for you. And all you have to do is admit it. And then say, God, you had a better plan. And that was to send your son to die in my place. And to literally love me enough to be my substitute on the cross. Would you stand with me this morning? For some of us this morning, it may be a course correction. We looked into the mirror of God's word and we realized the standard's not my parents who didn't love me. Standards not my grandparents who didn't do a great job or my friends or my co-workers. Standards God's word. And and we say, God, by your grace, I'm going to correct this. And I'm going to ask for you to fill me with your Holy Spirit to put me back on the right track. Maybe you've not been patient with people. Maybe you've not been kind. Maybe you've celebrated someone else's sin, whether it be the fall of their sin or just said, hey, it's their lifestyle, let them live it. That's unloving. 
And so many of us need a course correction. For some of you, it's that you need to step into this eternal love that comes through Jesus Christ. And you can do that by saying, God, I'm messed up. I've fallen short of your glory, and I need you to save me. And God says, welcome, welcome. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word that cuts like a two-edged sword, reads the thoughts and intentions of our heart. And Father, I just thank you and praise you for that. Lord, for any here who don't know your son, Jesus Christ, I pray that today would be the day that they would submit themselves and bow the knee to Christ. And God, I pray for this church that is the future is ahead of us, God, that will be a church that loves one another, that celebrates truth, that doesn't celebrate unrighteousness, Lord, that is willing to, to cover for their brothers and sisters in Christ and walk humbly with them and to endure all things together. God, this only happened by the power of your Holy Spirit. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The following message is brought to you by Cashin First Baptist Church in Cashin, Oklahoma. For more information about our church, please visit cashinfbc.org.